Welcome to It's All Political on Fifth and Mission. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today we're talking to Rachel Maddow. Many of us know Rachel from the 15 years that she's been hosting The Rachel Maddow Show on MSNBC. She'll be coming to San Francisco on Saturday to talk about her new book called Prequel, An American Fight Against Fascism. It looks back on the run-up to World War II. Many Americans remember that as the Good War, the one where Americans were united, rowing together to defeat Nazi Germany, right? Not really. In her book, Rachel shows how Nazi sympathizers weren't just a fringe movement in the United States, they were pervasive in law enforcement and had nearly two dozen supporters in the House and Senate. They supported fascism, spent millions on pro-Nazi propaganda, and were united under the political banner of Christianity. Much of that movement was driven by anti-Semitism, which is again at the forefront of the international conversation as fears about growing anti-Semitism and Islamophobia intensify amidst the escalating crisis in the Middle East. Rachel and I recorded our conversation earlier this month, a few days after Hamas militants launched a brutal attack on Israel, which in turn retaliated with devastating strikes in Gaza. Thousands of people, mostly civilians, have been killed. Prequel was originally intended to be a cautionary tale for present-day America. According to the Anti-Defamation League, anti-Semitic incidents rose 36% last year to nearly 3,700 in the U.S., Christian nationalist ideology has been empowered in the era of Donald Trump, who has stoked culture wars over abortion and LGBTQ rights. There's a lot to talk about with Rachel, who I first interviewed back in 2008 when we were both covering the Republican National Convention in St. Paul, Minnesota. She was just starting her TV show then and had a lot to say about how growing up in Castro Valley shaped her worldview. She'll have a little bit more to say about that here. So I started our conversation by welcoming her back home to the Bay Area. All right, Rachel Maddow, welcome to It's All Political on Fifth and Mission and a pre-welcome back home to the Bay Area. Thank you, Joe. It's great to see you. I've got to say, I learned a lot from your book, Prequel, and a lot of it was really alarming and scary. I I knew there were Nazi sympathizers in the U.S., but I didn't know to what extent they had uh, stockpiled weapons and the amount of money that was spent on propaganda and and, and how much support they had in the government and law enforcement. I want you to start by explaining to us in in a way that you so eloquently have been doing for 15 years on your show what the roots of these Nazi sympathizers were in the U.S., in the run-up to the war in the early 30s. We always think of World War II as, you know, the good war where we're all on the same page. But why would Americans be so supportive of uh, Hitler's Nazi Germany? It, we, we think of it as the good war. We also think of it as the simple war where we were good and they were bad and we went over there and beat them and it was over. And I understand why that history feels great. But sometimes you you find stuff in history that it's a real mystery as to why this disappeared out of the way we think of this time period and stuff. But with this one, it's very clear. We would prefer to think of ourselves as the good guys, full stop. And so the fact that there was a big movement here of Americans who wanted to develop an American form of Nazism, who actually sided with the Germans in the conflicts of their day, is uncomfortable. But they did it for all the reasons that, you know, fascism is a recurrent threat to democracies everywhere. There was anti-Semitism, which is a key thing in fascist ideation, 
that was not just ambient in the culture. It was being promoted by the most famous industrialist in the country, Henry Ford, by the most famous national hero in the country, Charles Lindbergh, by the biggest right-wing media figure, actually probably the most influential media figure ever in U.S. history, Charles Coughlin, who was organizing his listeners into armed militia cells. You know, so that that stuff was at work, and there's a there's a taste in the American public, just like there is in the publics in a lot of democracies, for strongman rule because democracy is uncomfortable, and that that was just a live issue in the 30s. Well, let's talk about some of these folks you just mentioned. As you say, uh, Charles Coughlin, Catholic priest, his weekly show commanded roughly a quarter of U.S. homes in the mid-1930s. That's an incredible, that no one has that kind of reach at this point. He was initially pro-Franklin Roosevelt, but later grew disillusioned with him when FDR kind of sidelined him. And he was promoting something called the Christian Front. What made Father Coughlin so powerful? And who are some of today's Father Coughlin's? There's no analog to Father Coughlin. I mean, the thing that is, I think, truly unique about him, and this is kind of heartening to me because I realize uh, we're never going to have somebody that big and that radical again, is as you say, he's got 30 million people listening to him every week in a country that's well under 200 million people in terms of our population. And the thing that's important about him is not, it, not just his reach and not just his radicalism, but the combination of the two. So to have somebody who's got that many people in the country hanging on his every word saying, I choose the road of fascism and we need to do this. We need to do what needs to be done in America, in his words, the Franco way, meaning we need a military takeover of this democracy and a dictatorship installed and then forming his listeners into armed militia groups to pursue those aims and those armed militia groups, the Christian Front, they do stockpile bombs and they steal U.S. military machine guns. I mean, it's as radical as you can possibly imagine. And so there's there's nothing like that today. But anytime somebody sort of pretends at any little slice of that, I think it's helpful to look back at how dangerous Coughlin was to the country to realize how that can go sort of as bad as it can go. Tell us about the silver shirts. Uh, this is sort of uh, America's version of the Nazi brown shirts. They were everywhere, including in California. You tell the story of their rise in, uh, in Minneapolis through the eyes of a young reporter who infiltrated them, uh, Eric Severide, who uh, some of our older listeners will remember is a longtime commentator on CBS News and sort of the Walter Cronkite era. One told uh, Severide that we've known for a long time that the Jews are plotting to seize the United States government. What were the thing, some of the things they're promising to do if they retain power? And why did, how did that resonate? The thing that is, again, kind of just hard to get our heads around with the silver shirts is that combination of how radical, how almost bizarrely radical they were and how big they were. It's one thing to have like a, you know, street corner preacher sect of crazies or cult that thinks that the Jews are taking over the world and we need to blah, blah, blah. You know, it's one thing to have that be some fringe outfit. In this case, it's tens of thousands of people who are part of the silver shirts, including wearing these stupid uniforms. They had a big L on them, like Laverne and Shirley style. <laughs> Stood for Silver Legion. Um, they followed this guy who wanted to be, who was very open about wanting to be America's Hitler. His name was William Dudley Pelly, who'd been a Hollywood screenwriter and was fairly charismatic 
orator and writer. He had this kind of, he would talk about the things with a, sort of an occult edge to them. And that was at a time when a lot of Americans were into that kind of stuff. So that maybe that helped. But they wanted an American war against the Jews. They didn't recognize Jewish Americans as Americans. They wanted what we would think of today, what we'd call an accelerationist strategy. So they wanted to basically set off terroristic attacks that were cal calibrated to upset people so much it would establish a state of emergency or a state of war in the country. And then they believed that all Gentiles would side with them as the sort of armed vanguard of the anti-Jewish side of the war. And they wanted to do what in the United States to Jewish Americans, what Hitler was doing to Jews in Germany. And William Dudley Pelley spent most of World War II in prison. But it was hard to get him there. And his followers were legion. And some of the stuff they planned, particularly in California, they had inside help in some National Guard armories in Southern California. And one guy in San Francisco who was willing to supply them with U.S. military weapons. It was just really radical and really surprisingly large for an organization that crazy. That's the terrifying thing about this book was that this is not a fringe group of wackos. This this had it's serious mainstream support. Mm -hmm. You know, you write about how many of these pro-fascism types sort of cast the world of that era as a battle between Christianity and communism and communism being sort of synonymous with Jews. Mm -hmm. Why did that resonate? That was and has been an anti-Semitic trope for decades. So when You've heard of the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion, right? Mm -hmm. Still circulates yeah. on the right today. Like oh, yeah. on, on, on Elon Musk's Twitter, you can, <laughs> you can get there real quick when you start talking about these issues. That was created as a forgery in Russia by the Russian secret police early in the 20th century. And the idea was to portray Jews as an elite secret cabal who's secretly pulling the strings all over the world, part of a plot to eliminate Christianity and, and, and dominate the world. And the reason they created that was because they wanted to blame the Jews for communism. They wanted to blame the Jews for Bolshevism and the Russian Revolution. And that has stuck effectively as an anti-Semitic trope. And so you have a lot of code words in the 30s and the 40s, and indeed today, where anti-Semites say that what they're fighting is communism and all of the coded language around it is about fighting Jewish people and fighting Judaism. And it always, always goes with authoritarian government and fascism because if you define some minority, and it's very often Jewish people, but it can also be other disfavored minorities, you define somebody as evil, you have conspiracy theories that they are not just evil, but they are secretly in control and taking over the world and they're a menace to us and our children and blah, blah. You define them that way, then what you have done is define a group of people as essentially not human and therefore ineligible to participate in a collective democracy with us in deciding what happens to this country. You need some disfavored, dehumanized group that is both you know, disliked and scary in order to discredit democracy, in order to make people feel like, oh, well, we can't make collective decisions. We just need somebody in charge to make sure that those people are held at bay. Rachel Maddow talks about how growing up in the Bay Area shaped her worldview. We'll have more of that when our conversation resumes after this short break. 
You're listening to Fifth and Mission. You can support the newsroom that creates this podcast by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. Welcome back to It's All Political on Fifth and Mission and more of our conversation with Rachel Maddow. In today's internet, as you alluded to, there's no shortage of disinformation. But back then, it was a paper-driven world. You write about something called snowstorming, which involves dropping handbills. Now, leaflet dropping is a widely used method of propaganda distribution employed by militaries all over the world going back decades. It's usually employed in war or conflict zones to spread a message to a population that's otherwise unreachable. In the case of snowstorming, though, Nazi sympathizer civilians within the U.S. would take these handbills with anti-Semitic messages and drop them from the top of buildings. This happened in San Diego, as you write. Tell us about that incident and what is the modern equivalent? Mm. So, so snowstorming happened all over the country. It happened in San Diego. Crucial plot point on that in the book because it led to an arrest of a key figure who kind of had this dossier that helped law enforcement bust up a bunch of these terrible fascist plots. It's really dramatic. There's also a version of it that actually happens over the White House. One celebrity occupation of this this time period in U.S. history is being an aviator, right? That's why Charles Lindbergh was so famous. People like Amelia Earhart, obviously, but there was a female aviator named Laura Ingalls, not Laura Ingalls Wilder, (laughs) but she was her eighth cousin, but still. And she actually snowstormed the White House. She flew a plane over the White House and dumped these flyers over the White House to make her case about not going to war against Hitler. She was actually a paid agent of the Gestapo, it later emerged. But this was one of the things that they would do at a time when print was king. And it's one thing to wheat paste threatening flyers up all over the city or the neighborhood of your choice. It's another thing to have them come down from the heavens. And in the era of the first tall buildings, getting up to the roof of a tall building and throwing these things down was both impressive and also really intimidating to people who would not know where this stuff was coming from. And it really did literally feel like it was everywhere and coming from nowhere. And these flyers were incredibly menacing. And they were almost always targeting Jews. So, I mean, what creates an ambient sense of anonymous fear like that? It's, you know, it's the social media trolling stuff. It's also these shows of force that we're getting from literal neo-Nazi groups, you know, on overpasses in Los Angeles and in overpasses in, in South Florida now. The sense of, you know, masked people, you can't tell who they are, you don't know their origins, they feel like they're everywhere, and they're militant and menacing, and very, very often targeting American Jews. I was surprised, you talk about this happening in Washington, I was very surprised that how this movement had infiltrated Congress. You write that 20 U.S. House members and senators use their franking privileges, and that's their ability to send out free mail, essentially, to a Nazi-friendly groups. How in the heck does that happen? 20 members? I mean, that is mind-blowing. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, it, again, it's the combination of the radicalism and the reach. And to know that the reach included like two dozen members of Congress in the United States Senate, I know why we don't remember this story. It is comfortable to remember the World War II era in a much more black and white way. But the ways in which we were fighting the fascist front here at home really is mind-blowing. What's the equivalent of using the franking privilege today? Basically using the congressional mouthpiece to further these type of 
themes and images and, and, and horrible ideas. I mean, I think using your status as a member of Congress to platform and spotlight, um, like, let's say, for example, you're a Republican member of Congress who goes and speaks at the America First conference for hosted by Nick Fuentes and the that which is an, an, a neo-Nazi white supremacist anti-Semitic movement. And then you've got members of Congress going there, bringing cameras with them, right? Because that happens anytime you're a member of Congress and you appear there and platform their organization. There's a little bit of, there's a, in the mass media era, there's a little bit of, there's a little bit of that. And we've got right now, I think, members of Congress who are willing to traffic in the worst stuff and some stuff that really has echoes with this era for money and for fame in, in terms of clicks and, and influence online, but also because in some cases, I think they sympathize. What do you want people to think about as the cautionary tale aspect of, of your book? Yeah. For me, the thing that is helpful about this history is not so much the bad guys, but the good guys. So it is, I think, eye-opening to, to find analogs between a Charles Coughlin or a Senator Burton Wheeler or a Charles Lindbergh or some, some of these people. We, we do have some parallels. We do have some modern analogs for those really odious figures who today want our country to not use elections to determine our future, who today want us to have a strongman form of government instead and who traffic in anti-Semitism and all the rest to get there. The thing that I hope people can take away from this history, though, is the stories of the Americans who fought those guys and how they did it. Because it is not just that there is some uncanny resonance with really bad people wanting something really bad for America at a time when it should have been clear what the moral stakes were. The hopeful resonance to me is that there were Americans who recognized how dangerous it was and who exposed them, who infiltrated them, who prosecuted them, and who beat them. And that, to me, is the whole reason to do this work. While this is a dark story, I feel like it's a very hopeful story because seeing Burton Wheeler get voted out of office at the end of this tale, which is something you would never believe at the beginning of this tale, that kind of you know, that makes my heart sing the national well, anthem. Let's <laughs> let's talk about one of one of those who's a Californian, Leon Lewis, uh, yeah. who was a, a Los Angeles attorney. He foiled plans for some of these groups to take over armories on the West Coast. Tell us a little bit about Leon Lewis and who would be a Leon Lewis of today. Mm. So Leon Lewis was a Jewish American lawyer who had fought in World War I and actually had kind of an amazing World War I career. And he knew a lot of World War I veterans because he was involved in veterans community in Southern California. And when the Aryan bookstore opened, in, literally, it's called the Aryan bookstore in Los Angeles, and the Friends of New Germany started trying to recruit in the veterans community for pro-Nazi organizing in Southern California. And this is at a time when Hindenburg Park in Southern California was hosting big meetings of the German-American Bund where they were lighting swastikas on fire and having Hitler youth summer camps in Los Angeles. Like, when all this was happening, he realized, okay, so <laughs> we're going to have to not just monitor this or be aware that this is happening. I know where this is going. And he recruited World War I veterans, German-Americans, almost all of them. It was not Jews that he was recruiting. It was German-Americans who were not in sympathy with the new Germany and what was going on with the Nazis. In some cases, he recruited their wives as well. And he had them infiltrate these groups at great, great personal risk to themselves to report on what they were doing, 
they assembled essentially big dossiers on what these groups were doing and how they were not just fomenting violence and, and, and stealing military weapons and stockpiling bombs and, and ammunition and stuff in the United States. They were also in touch with the Hitler government. They were in touch with the con German consulates for support and funding. He exposed it to law enforcement. In a lot of cases, law enforcement didn't get it. And he had to keep going back to them with stuff over and over again. He also did some really creative stuff like bringing civil suits against some of these organizations. You might remember that after the Charlottesville Unite the Right rally in 2017, civil rights legal organization brought a civil suit against the Nazis from Charlottesville and basically sued a bunch of them into oblivion. Leon Lewis did that in the 30s in Los Angeles wow. against the Nazi groups there that were actually working with the Berlin government. So he was just a huge American hero and incredibly innovative and sort of forgotten for a long time. There's a historian named Stephen Ross who wrote a book called Hitler in Los Angeles based on Leon Lewis's papers. And he really, he and another historian named Laura Rosenzweig really have brought him to life in a way that we need to learn from now. So you're going to be in San Francisco on your book tour on Saturday, October 21st at the Golden Gate Theater. And, I, and since I have you here, we have to talk a little bit about your, your Bay Area background. Grew up in Castro Valley. Your your dad, Bob, is a, a loyal reader, chronicle reader, and we've had an ongoing dialogue. <laughs> over the my, dad, my dad's a good dialoguer. He, he's yeah, a good he, dialoguer. He gives he me a lot a of man feedback. Who will, he will stay in touch. <laughs> Never say stay in touch to a man who, a man who means it, because he will. <laughs> now you're 50 now. We're we're in uh, we're in middle age, and we first met back in 2008 when you right was you were starting your show. And uh, grew up in middle-class suburban, as you say, very Catholic family, high school athlete. And as you told me back then, you were in 2008. I was a gay kid growing up in the Bay Area in the 90s. High school, you started sneaking off to work at an AIDS clinic in West Oakland without telling your parents. You're also involved in ACT UP, which is an activist group, very much involved in the AIDS crisis. How do you look back on how your Bay Area upbringing, all those many different forces made you the person you are today. Hmm. That's a, that's a tough, deep question, Joe. Thanks. <laughs> um, it's funny because I always like my usual cop out on this is to say that my memory is like a um, bodega security camera. Like it's all, it's all there, but it rolls over every four weeks. So, <laughs> like, it just, so yeah, that's, that's, that's actually it. very emotionally helpful sometimes. Yes, <laughs> it is exactly. And that's, I think that's, I think my brain works that way for a reason. No, I mean, listen, my, my parents still live in the house that I grew up in. I definitely still feel like a Bay Area kid. I still think of the city as San Francisco, even though mm -hmm. I haven't lived anywhere near the West Coast for a really long time. I think that I benefited from a time when California public schools were great. I think when you're in when you're in the middle of that, when you're when you're still being formed as a brain, you don't recognize what's forming your brain. But once you get old and you look back on what you benefited from, I'm more and more appreciative of that. I also think that, you know, ACT UP and the AIDS crisis and coming out at age 17, having grown up, you know, I was born in 1973. So in, in 1990, I was 17. Go, you know, that is a formative thing that I think is hard to explain to people who don't have a personal experience of it, but people who do have a personal experience of it, it's kind of a, if you know, you know, thing. Mm -hmm. When I meet gay people sort of of my generation, particularly people who lived around New York or San Francisco and went through that 
trial by fire in terms of losing people your own age at a at a young age. It's a unique experience in this country for our generation. So that is something that I, I think made me who I am. I'm really grateful to have the family that I do and to have had the advantages that I did growing up. And I'm sort of still trying to I think I'm still trying to do my mom and dad proud. <laughs> oh, they're very proud uh, getting to know your dad a little bit over the years. Thank you so much. I know you have a, a quite a quick turnaround when you're in the Bay Area. Any place that you go to or do you hang out at home? Is there a bakery? Is there a, a, a place, a hike, a hike? What do you do? Taqueria Cancun in the mission. Yeah. Black beans, extra cilantro. Uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I actually, I, I'll like, I love, I, I love the Bay Area. I love California. I love San Francisco. But really, I love burritos. <laughs> and so, <laughs> if we want to boil it down to one wow, thing, so it's, it's it's more of a burrito thing than a, than a San Francisco thing. It is like I can't talk about like my childhood, but I can talk to you about how to order that burrito. <laughs> So there we go. And I will as soon as I land. One of my flights is a time when I have calibrated the burrito to the airport drive. <laughs> Rachel Maddow, the book is called Prequel. It is uh, so good to see you again. Uh, see your face uh, it, it, in dialogue, at least. And, and hopefully I'll see you when you're out here. You too, Joe. Thank you so much for this. This is super fun. I'd like to thank you for listening and hope that you and your family are safe and healthy. I'd like to thank Rachel Maddow for being on the show today and to her dad, Bob Maddow, for being a longtime reader and commenter. Rachel will be talking about her book, Prequel, on Saturday, October 21st at the Golden Gate Theater in San Francisco. I also want to send some love to my Fifth and Mission teammates, producer Keith Menconi, executive producer and host Cecilia Lay, co-host Laura Buenas, audio engineer Gary Baca, and editor Sarah Feldberg. We will see you next time on It's All Political on Fifth and Mission.